0: God allows for crises in our lives to draw us closer to Him and to demonstrate His power and His love. Since nothing is impossible with God, never stop praying. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. As you know, we're in a study of 1 and 2 Kings. This is a record, a biblical narrative record of the monarchy in Israel, especially the period of the divided kingdom, which occurred after Solomon's death. God was speaking now to the nation through his written word, the law of Moses, and through the prophets, who we have studied last week, the last several weeks, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was God's uh, chosen fiery prophet who confronted evil, primarily Ahab and Jezebel, with eloquence and courage and power. And Elijah's successor is Elisha. And he was a very different personality, very gentle, uh, very uh, much a teacher and a healer. Now God has taken Elijah to heaven and anointed and designated Elisha as his uh, successor. So today we're going to look at Elisha's interactions with two women, very different and yet very similar. If you would go to chapter 4, verse 1, let's pick up the narrative in the text there. Now a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, and the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me. What do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go, borrow vessels at large for yourself from all your neighbors, even empty vessels, do not get a few. And you shall go in and shut the door behind you and your sons and pour out into all these vessels and you shall set aside what is full. Here's the principle. God doesn't always tell us why. But God is always good. So we can trust Him even when we don't understand. God doesn't always tell us why. I wanted to say seldom tells us why. But God is always good. Therefore, we can trust Him even when we don't understand. Here's the context. The widow of a prophet, I want you to think of a pastor, pastor, prophet, teacher, spiritual leader in Israel, uh, comes to Elisha. Elisha is the headmaster, really, of the schools of the prophets. There's a number of schools of prophets. They're kind of like Bible colleges or or Hebrew seminaries scattered throughout uh, the land. And uh, Samuel really started these under Saul, and Elijah and Elisha are continuing them. He's kind of the headmaster, if you will, kind of the leader of that. And this is a widow of one of the sons of the prophets who have died. And she probably lived in one of these particular cities where this seminary, unquote, was... um, located. These obviously were not monastic settlements, they were family-oriented. And this is a godly widow, and she is destitute. She has a jar of olive oil in the house, and that is all. Now, we don't know how long ago her husband died, uh, but we do know she's in debt, and she's likely sold everything that she can to pay down the debt. In that era, there's no life insurance, there's no government social safety net, there's no um, retirement planning, it was an agricultural economy, and it was largely manual labor, which means they didn't have tractors, you had maybe oxen if you were very wealthy, and other than that, it was, it was physical labor that was required to even produce a marginal crop. Everybody was subsistence farmers, pretty tough life. Widows were virtually 100% of the time reduced to poverty, and were dependent on the kindness of relatives. And in godless cultures, they were often forced into prostitution. Now, Israel, obviously, uh, is not at that point yet, but she was extremely uh, needy. So this couple had incurred debt prior to his death. And now that he had died, she had no income uh, to make the payments on the debt. And in that era, there was no such thing as bankruptcy. You couldn't declare bankruptcy and discharge the debt. You had to pay back what you owed. And failing to pay back the debt meant that, The creditor, the person you owed money to, could come and take you or family members as slaves, as servants, and you would work off the debt with labor. Sweat equity. You owed XYZ, you're going to come and work for me for so many months or so many years at so much rate until that debt is paid off. Now, this woman has lost her husband and she's about ready to lose her two children because the creditor is going to come and put them in slavery and indentured servitude to pay back the debt. So she brings her problem, which is vast, to the man of God. And Elisha, he seems to be scratching his chin and saying, let me see, um, what can I do for you? He's kind of thinking out loud, what do you have in the house? What resources do you have that we can work with? Have you probably noticed that God often works with the resources we already have. Right, he he takes what we have, which may or may not be much of anything, and he uses it to accomplish his purposes. Remember, when Jesus fed the five thousand at the Sea of Galilee, what did he feed him with? Five loaves and two fish. The little boy had five loaves and two fish, and Jesus didn't create the bread and the fish out of thin air. He used what was already there and multiplied it to accomplish his purposes. In Matthew 17 we find out that Jesus has a tax problem. The Pharisees, the Romans, uh, collected a poll tax. That means you have tax on your body once a year, and they didn't have the money. And Jesus told Peter, the fisherman, to do what? Go fishing. And the first fish you catch will have a coin in its mouth. Take that coin and pay the poll tax. So oftentimes, Jesus uses what we have, uses our given skills, Uses our background, he takes what we have and who we are in our relationships and works through that to accomplish his purposes. So, Elisha tells her, I want you to borrow empty vessels, probably clay containers, fired clay containers, they didn't have glass back then, and I want you to borrow them from your neighbors. And he says, God is going to supernaturally keep your container of oil full, that little jar of olive oil you have, uh, until all the vessels are filled. So this is fascinating to me, because you can measure the size of her faith by the number of vessels she got. Did she really believe that this container of oil would not run out? By the way, when a prophet tells you, get vessels, empty ones, and don't get a few, what does that mean? Get everyone you can beg, borrow, I'm not going to say steal, whatever, but get as many as you can. If God told you to collect empty vessels, how many would you get? Would you go down and borrow a semi tanker truck or something? I mean, you might get pretty serious if you had the faith. Now, it's kind of a metaphorical picture here. In real life, the empty vessels are us, we are the empty vessel that God wants to fill with His Spirit to accomplish His purposes. Unfortunately, most people are so full of it, I mean themselves, they're so full of themselves, that there's really not a lot of room for God, right? We sing, I surrender all, we really don't mean that. We mean, I surrender what's convenient, I surrender what I need right now, I surrender my pain points, and Jesus says, no, no, I want... All of you, and I want you to be empty so that I can fill you with me. We say, well, Lord, you need to fill that person and corral them and correct them and fix them. The Lord says, no, I want to fill you and accomplish my purposes through you. That's what surrenders about emptying your life. The old song, Rock of Ages, says what? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. We say, God, I've got a whole lot of good stuff that's me, and you really need to respect that. And the Lord says, "Um, no, nothing you bring to me, except you, empty, and I will fill you to accomplish your purpose. Interesting metaphor. It's interesting here that Elisha does not tell her why she should bring the vessels. He doesn't tell her what's going to happen. He just said, bring as many empty vessels as you can. So she's operating in faith. And she follows this command, and she doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. And this is so true for us. Many of us, as a matter of fact, I would venture to say everyone in this room right now has some situation in your life that you do not understand what God is doing or what he will do or how he will do it but you're praying like crazy he's going to do something, right? Because today has issues and troubles and trials, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the whole point of the principle. We don't always understand what God is doing because God very seldom explains himself up front. He says, trust me, follow me, right? And we follow him because we know he loves us and he demonstrated that love at the cross. So we know that he has good plans for us because he's promised that and he's demonstrated that at the cross. So we choose to trust Him. How many, many of you have lived long enough in the faith that when God's doing something in your life, you go, Huh? I do not understand. As a matter of fact, Lord, this doesn't make any sense at all. This is so counterintuitive to what I think should happen. I can't believe you're allowing this to happen. And God does what He does. And we trust Him or we don't trust Him. And 15 years later, 20 years later, 25 years later, we go, Oh, that's what you were up to. And he says, yes, and infinitely more than that, that you will not understand until you get home to glory. And most of it you will not understand then. Because I am infinite. And your little three-pound brain is not going to comprehend my purposes and my will fully. So trust my heart when you can't see my hand. Verse 5, so she, the widow, went from Elisha and shut the door behind her and her sons. They were bringing the vessels to her, and she poured. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not one more vessel. And the oil stopped. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil, pay your debt, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Here's the principle. God is generous. His supply always meets and often exceeds our needs. God is generous. His supply always meets and often exceeds our needs. I want you to know the widow did exactly what Elisha instructed her. The vessels, of course, as we mentioned, not only measured the oil, they measured her faith, and therefore they contained God's provision because as long as there were empty vessels, the oil kept flowing. You know what that means? As long as you don't get full of yourself, the Holy Spirit will keep pouring His life into your life. That's why every morning we get up, we do what? We surrender this day to the Lord because it's a gift from Him. Most of us think we can manage the day without Him until a crisis occurs or something happens and we go, you know, Lord, I never surrendered this day to you. How smart is that? It's not smart at all. Because God has a purpose for this day, and if we don't ask him to guide us in what it is, we're going to do what? What we think our purpose for the day is. Well, he didn't give you the day to accomplish your purposes. He gave the day to supernaturally fill you to accomplish his purposes, which are better and more joyful than doing it our way, by the way. So when the last vessel was topped off, the oil stopped. Interesting, only after the widow had followed Elisha's initial instructions, did he tell her what to do next and tell her why? Sell the oil, pay your debt, live on the breast, right? See, God provided for her short-term need, which was debt, save her children from slavery, and her long-term need, which was income to support her and her family. And there was plenty of oil to accomplish both those goals. Very similar to Elijah. Remember when he fed the widow at Zarephath for more than a year because he said, make me a cake, and she made a cake, and it says the oil and the flour did not, deplete for well over a year. So God is demonstrating his loving care of his people, and he's obviously making it clear to Israel, Elisha is the successor to Elijah, because I am doing miracles through him to demonstrate my approval of his ministry. So God has deep concern for this woman. She's an impoverished, obscure widow. And in the next story, God has deep concern, care, and love for a wealthy, prominent married woman. Pick up the narrative at verse 8. Now there came a day when Elisha passed over to Shunem where there was a prominent woman and she persuaded him to eat food. And it was so, as often as he passed by, he turned in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold now, I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing us by continually. Please let us make a little walled upper chamber and let us set a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand and it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Then he said to Gehazi, a servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him. He said to her, say now to her, behold, you have been very careful for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Would you be spoken for to the king or to the captain of the army? She answered, I, I live among my own people. And Gehazi, the servant, at least at this point, demonstrates enormous insight. He says, she has no son, and her husband is old. It, in that era, being childless was shameful. Being childless, it was a stigma. It was like the scarlet letter, you know? Being childless for a woman in that era implied being cursed by God. It was enormously negative. Being childless with an aged husband meant that he was probably going to die and there was no heir to carry on the family name, which was a tragedy because she would be left all alone with a farming operation. She probably uh, couldn't physically do. She might have hired the help, but couldn't do it herself. Now, we're not told her age, but it's apparent she's old enough to have completely given up hope of ever becoming a mother. God told Elisha to tell her she would have a son. She says, no, no, my Lord, don't build up my hopes, right? It was beyond what she could imagine. Clearly, she believed that having a child was impossible, and so she didn't tell Elijah what her heart's desire was. And I think this is really true. I think many times we, we may long for things, and they haven't happened in so long. We just give up. And you know how we know that? Because we stop praying about it. We just say, you know, it ain't going to happen. And so I'm not going to talk to the Lord about it. If the Lord's told you it's not going to happen, okay. If you're asking for something that doesn't honor him, you shouldn't be asking that anyway. But I really believe that we have goals and dreams that God has given us. And because they don't happen in our time frame, we assume that he says no not true. It may not be not yet. It may be if he blessed you with your heart's desire, you would mishandle it at this point because you're not mature enough to deal with the blessing. Right? That happens. He says, I want to bless you, but for me to bless you with what I'm going to do, you need to be more mature, spiritually mature to manage that. So, just as God had spoken through Elisha, she conceived, and 12 months later, in the same season, she gave birth. Which means what? God knows us better than we know ourselves. And most of you would say, well, that's pretty clear. No, I'm, that's really serious. We're pretty convinced we know what's best for us, right? God knows us better than we know ourselves. And His plans for us are beyond our comprehension. Ephesians 3.20, one of my favorite verses. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond, far more abundantly, abundantly beyond what? All that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. What's that? God the Holy Spirit Himself working within you, infinite God working within you. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. See, God's plans for us reflect what? His infinite love, His infinite grace, which He demonstrated at the cross. It goes beyond our imagination. No matter what your life is like now, God's plans for your life are beyond what you can comprehend. Beyond what you can comprehend. He will solve your problems in ways that you cannot imagine at this point. Do not lose heart. Verse 18. When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father, to the reapers. He said to his father, my head, my head. And he said to his servant, carry him to his mother. When he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her lap until noon and then died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and return. He said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It will be well. Here's the principle. God allows for crises in our lives to draw us closer to him and to demonstrate his power and his love. God allows, God actually arranges for crises in the life of his children to draw us closer to him and to demonstrate his power and love. So this boy is about probably six to eight years old. He goes out to the fields to be with dad, who is working with the reapers. It's harvest time, so it's fall time. It's probably hot. And apparently he suffers a sunstroke. It's not said, but he says, my head, my head. So I think we can probably assume he's got some sort of heat problem. And it's interesting that a servant, not the father, carries the boy back to his mom. And she holds him on her lap and he dies at noon. And this child must have been fairly young because she carries him up the outside steps to Elisha's second story room, lays him on Elisha's bed. I have a hard time comprehending what's going through her mind at this point. Elisha said, you're going to have a child which was born miraculously, and now this dream, this future, this passion, this hope is crushed. She calls her husband and she says, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys. I can run to meet the man of God and return. Now, they must have been a wealthy family. They had servants, plural, right? One of them. He asks her, if a husband asks, why are you going to Elisha now? I mean, it's not a religious holiday. Usually you would see the prophet when it was time for a religious holiday or a religious service. The new moon, of course, occurred once a month. And Shabbat, Sabbath, occurred every week, and it wasn't either one of those two days. So why do you want to see him? And uh, he doesn't, interestingly, does not connect her decision to go to the man of God with the illness of their son in the field, which staggers me. I have no idea what he is thinking. He must have been thinking about the harvest. Apparently, he doesn't ask how their son is doing. And she does not tell him he's died for an extremely good reason. If she told him at this point in time that her son is dead, he would have ordered an immediate burial. In that era, they didn't have undertakers. It was a hot harvest season. You wouldn't put a corpse out in the house for two or three days. Disease was rampant based on that. You would have a burial immediately. Now, you're going to find out she doesn't want her son buried, and so she doesn't tell him that he's died. She simply says, Shalom, it'll be well, peace. And what she's hoping is that Elisha, the holy man of God, will be able to perform a miracle for their son, because she remembers all Israel remembered, that not a few years before then, Elijah, Elisha's mentor, had raised what? The widow's son from Zarephath, from the dead. And so this child was born because of the prophet Elisha's prophecy through the Lord, and she is hoping by faith that Elisha will be used by God to raise her son from the dead. Now that is faith in spite of evidence. But it's faith based on the character of God that she has seen through Elisha. Verse 24. Then she saddled a donkey and she said to her servant, drive and go forward, do not slow down the pace for me unless I tell you. So she went and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her at a distance, he said to Gehazi, a servant, behold, there is a Shunammite. Please run now to meet her and say to her, is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, it is well. When she came to the man of God to the hill, she caught hold of his feet. And as he came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone. For her soul is troubled within her and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, did I ask for a son from my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Then he said to Gehazi, gird up your loins and take my staff in your hand and go your way. If you meet any man, do not salute him. And if anyone salutes you, do not answer him and lay my staff on the lad's face. The mother of the lad said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. And he arose and followed her. Then Gehazi passed on before them and laid the staff on the lad's face, but there was no sound or response. So he returned and told them, the lad has not awakened. Uh, Mount Carmel, the peak of Mount Carmel is about 18 miles to the west from the village of Shunem. Now, even if you're traveling by donkey, this was not a short trip. Donkeys walk at about three and a half miles an hour, and they trot at about eight miles an hour, but they can't do it forever. So, when a person traveled by donkey, especially a, a woman of prominence like that, either the servant walked ahead of the donkey, probably like Joseph did with Mary, right? leading the donkey by reins, or they walked behind the donkey with a stick and they kind of go to the donkey to keep them moving, right, with a long pole. So given her hurry, it's probably a fast walk. She said, don't slow down the pace for me. So she is focused on getting to Mount Carmel. I imagine the servant was probably speed walking or might even been jogging. But even no matter how you cut it, it's hard to perceive that this would be less than maybe a four hour ride if it's 18 miles at 3.5 miles an hour. So she left for Mount Carmel shortly after noon. Her son had died at noon and she got the donkey and left. So if she left then, she probably got to Carmel by late afternoon. But Mount Carmel is is part of a 20-mile mountain range, 20 miles long. So we're not sure exactly where Elisha was on this range. He might have been all the way at the top of Mount Carmel, or he might have been a little closer to Jezreel than the 18 miles. At any rate, Elisha's at an elevated point, and he sees her coming, and he recognizes her, and he sends Gehazi to her to see if everything's okay. And she says, it is well. Uh, either one of two things are going. On. Either that was a brush off, I don't want to talk to you, I want to talk to Elisha, which is understandable. Or, if she says, it is well with my soul, despite the death of her son, that's quite a statement of faith. I mean, She's obviously believing... In life after death, and she's obviously believing that Elisha can raise her son from the dead. I don't know which it is, it may be a little bit of both. So when she comes to Elisha, she says nothing. She just falls down and grasps his feet, which in that era was a sign of veneration, humility, and quite frankly, desperation. Now, Gehazi thinks that it's inappropriate for a woman to be touching the prophet, so she tries to shoo her away, and Elisha says, leave her alone, Her soul is in deep grief, and I don't know what it is. God has not told me what's going on. So when she does speak to Elisha, she does not tell him why she has come, but she tells him how she feels. She cannot bring herself to say, my son is dead. Um, For those of you who have gone through grief, and most of you have, you may be in the middle of it now, um, it's almost impossible to put into words. If you have have gone through heartbreak, you know. And when someone comes to you with heartbreak and your heart's been broken, they don't have to explain to you how they feel, do they? You know, because you've had your heart broken. She's devastated. She says, Elisha, I didn't ask for this son. You blessed me by God, through you blessed me with this son, And now he is dead. In other words, if I never had this son, I would not have this heartbreak. If you love, you're going to have your heart broken. That's reality. If you want the ecstasy of intimacy and love, you're going to have your heart broken when someone leaves through death or moves away or whatever it happens to be. Trying to protect your heart from pain by refusing to love, by keeping people at a distance, is putting your heart in the coffin before your body crawls in. It's no life. God made us to love Him first and love others second. And that's going to involve both ecstasy and agony. And that's life. Stop running from it. The Holy Spirit will give you grace and power to deal with. There's an old poem, I can't remember who wrote it, maybe it was Browning. Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Because love changes you. Love shapes you like Jesus. And your comfort in all of this heartbreak is that His love never fails. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No matter how bad the heartbreak is in this life, and sometimes it's really, really bad, he will never leave you. His love is everlasting. So Elisha sends Gehazi head with his staff. He's obviously younger and he can run. Now Elisha's staff, his walking stick, was a symbol of God's power. And Elisha says, don't greet anybody. Don't say hi. Don't say bye. You stay focused. If, if Gehazi was an ambulance man, he'd have his red lights on and siren blazing, and he was headed for that destination, right? See, if there was a greeting, then you lead to conversation, and, and Elisha wants him to get to the house quickly. So Gehazi puts Elisha's staff on the boy's face. Nothing happens. He tells him the news. And the woman says, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Where have we heard this before? This is exactly... The promise that Elisha made to Elijah before Elijah went to heaven. Three times. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Clearly she has faith that Yahweh through Elisha can restore her son back to life. And it's interesting. This is a remarkable woman. It says she leads the way back to Shunem. And Elisha follows. I bet she set a fast pace. She is cooking. On the way over. And on the way back, she's taking care of business. Verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, behold, the lad was dead and laid on his bed. So he entered and shut the door behind them both and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth and his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself on him and the flesh of the child became warm. Then he returned and walked in the house once back and forth and went up and stretched himself on him. And the lad sneezed seven times and the lad opened his eyes. He called Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came in to him, he said, Take up your son. Then she went and fell at his feet and bowed herself to the ground and she took up her son and went out. Here's the principle. Since nothing is impossible with God, never... Stop praying. Since nothing is impossible with God, never stop praying. He entered the room. He shut the door. This is obviously going to be a private miracle. And the very first thing he does is pray. The word pray here means continuing prayer. I mean, it's pretty obvious Elisha has been praying for 18 miles, right? Walking behind the donkey, praying, asking the Lord to show him what to do and how to do it. He's intensely praying and has been for a number of hours. I'm sure you know that casual prayers are seldom effective prayers. The secret to effective prayer is the same thing to effective relationships. It takes time alone with Jesus. Significant amount of time with Jesus to have that relationship. When you come to the Lord, it's imperative that we be pure vessels. And we do that through what? Confession. What Scripture say? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? All unrighteousness. God declares you righteous then. And it's imperative that that's the case because God works through pure vessels. God works through cleansed people. And we all need to be cleansed regularly. James 5.16 says what? The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And I'm going, that's quite a statement. Number one, what's an effective prayer? And number two, what's a righteous person? Well, the only righteousness we have is what? The righteousness of Christ. And that's imputed. That's given to us as a credit. It's given to us by his grace. So we don't bring righteousness. We receive his righteousness and we're made righteous. And based on that, we can pray effectively in the name of and for the glory of Jesus Christ, and that accomplishes much. Why is that true? This is one of the greatest verses in the New Testament. This is the angel speaking to Mary after he has told her, you will bear Messiah. And she says, how can this be? I don't know a man. And he says, nothing will be impossible with God. And I say that extremely clearly because most of us in this room are facing situations that feel impossible. From a human standpoint, matter of fact, they probably are impossible. Guaranteed. But nothing is impossible with God. So Elisha's praying inside the room. Probably Gehazi and the Shunammite are praying outside the room. And Elisha prays in a prone position, lying on the child. I mean, when you read this description, it sounds like CPR, right? But this is exactly what Elijah had done. So, the picture here is the power of God flowing through the intermediary of Elisha. This is not Elisha's power. This is God's power flowing through the intermediary of Elisha, right, to bring this child back to life. And Jesus spoke of this exact process when he what? He talked about the vine and the branches in the Gospel of John. He says, I'm the vine, I'm the source of life, I'm the supernatural life. And if you remain connected with me like a branch remains the vine, my supernatural power will work through you wherever I have placed you in the world, and there will be spiritual life, spiritual fruit, spiritual results that are born. We're the branches, his is the life, and Elisha illustrates this principle. The power of God works through him to raise his child from the dead, and the Holy Spirit works through us to bring spiritual life to people who are raised from hell to heaven, from spiritual death to spiritual life. Now it says Elisha got up, he paced around the room, he's praying, I mean he's physically moving around the room, and then he returns, prostrates himself on the child again. God restores this child's life, air returns to the lung, and he sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Now seven is the divine number. And it implies, even back then, Perfection and completion, right? So exactly seven sneezes, no more and no less. That was a divine sign to the nation of Israel that this was an act of God. Seven times. Elisha calls for her. She comes in, sees her son's alive, falls at his feet in gratitude and respect. She bows down. She worships the Lord and his gracious answer to her prayers. And she picks up her son and goes out. What's remarkable is this woman's faith that's illustrated throughout this narrative. Number one, she believes Elisha is a man of God. She builds a room for him because he's a holy man of God. She has discernment. When she's in crisis, she does what? She understands that only God can help her, so she rides to the man of God at Mount Carmel for help immediately. She expresses her grief and her faith when she grasps Elisha's feet and refuses to leave him. And when God answers her prayer, she bows and worships the lord with gratitude for restoring her son to life what's not mentioned here is the story has a possible double miracle it's highly possible that she and her husband were too old to have children now we're not told that she's old but we're told that her husband is old but she's obviously been struggling with barrenness infertility for so long that she's given up hope of it ever happening that's a number of years Reminds us of Elizabeth and Zacharias. Remember the elderly uh, priestly couple who were far beyond childbearing age and the Lord blesses them with the birth of John. John the Baptist, of course, becomes the forerunner of the Messiah. So God blesses this woman's faith and care for Elijah by giving her son. The sorrow of the death of her son and the second miracle of raising him from the dead revealed God's power and God's love. Now she not only has a living son, she's far better off having him die and raised from the dead than she would have been if he had never died. Do you understand that? What she has now is not just the living son, she has a new life-changing experience with Yahweh, the God of Israel, the glory, right? Andre Crouch wrote a song through it all. Part of the chorus reads, if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that God could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in God could do. So the pain of the problems that God blesses us with are designed to draw us to depend on Him. Why would that be important? Because we are branches that don't always remain connected with the vine. We think we can grow fruit with the branch disconnected from the vine, and we do it all the time. Anytime you do something without prayer, anytime you do something without humility, anytime you do something in your own strength, you're saying, I don't need the vine, I got this thing. Nothing's going to happen supernaturally, if you got it. It's just going to be human activity. It's going to be a corpse dancing around a little bit, but there's going to be no spiritual life. So God in His mercy, and blesses us with problems to cause us to depend on Him, the vine remain connected with the branch. We're drawn into a loving relationship with Him because we trust Him, not because we necessarily want to, but because we have to. And then... We fall in love with him because we understand that he first loved us. And then we want to remain. Having a more intimate relationship with the God of the universe is the whole purpose behind the problem in the first place. The real key miracle here was not the resurrection, the physical resurrection of the boy. He's going to die again. The real purpose of this miracle was her faith in Yahweh is now changed forever. So you look at your life and you say, What do I know about God? Well, I mean, what do I really know about Him? Well, you obviously know everything that Scripture says because this is the complete revelation of what we know about God. We have His creation, Romans 1 says that tells us about His power and his might. This tells us about his character, his person, his plan, his love. And you say, okay, that's fine. I got that. The other thing you know about the Lord is by experience. Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? Right? If you look at your knowledge of God, I would submit to you that the vast majority of your knowledge of God by experience has come through struggle, strife, suffering, troubles, trials, pain, and problems. Is that not true? Because that's when we learn to depend on His Word. That's when we experience that He can do far beyond all that we ask or think. That's when we come to the end of ourselves and stop trying to make it happen ourselves and say, Lord, it's your power through me that will accomplish what you want to do. There is nothing more valuable than your relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus loves us so much that he is willing and designs troubles in our lives for the purpose of blessing. Does that make sense? Some of you are really chewing on that. Because we say, God, if you love me, you'd take my problems away. That sounds like a two-year-old. Your grandchildren will tell you that. Grandma, if you really love me, you'd let me have my way. And you, as a wise grandparent or as a wise parent, years ago said, no, because I love you, I am not going to let you have your way. Because your way is foolish. It is not as wise as my way because I'm older. Right? God has given me this responsibility. The Lord does this to us on a routine basis. He says, because I love you, I'm not going to give you your way. I want you to trust me and trust me to do things my way. Okay? So, point number one. God doesn't always tell us why. Matter of fact, he seldom tells us why. But we know that God is always good. Good so we can trust him even when we don't understand. By the way, when you're in the middle of something, you almost never understand it, right? You trust him. Number two, God is generous. His supply always meets and often exceeds our needs. Even beyond that, God's plans for us go beyond our deepest desires and fondest dreams. You know, whatever you are bringing to the Lord, whatever you're praying about, I would argue that our prayers are far too small. you know why? Because our prayers are usually limited to our imagination. We say, God, I've got this problem, and if you could solve the problem this way, I would be really grateful. There's no harm, no foul with that. But how much better would it be to say, Lord, you have eternal purposes behind this problem. I don't know what they are. But I'm committed to trust you to accomplish your eternal purposes through this problem, regardless of what that means for me. Regardless. And it may mean suffering. It may mean troubles and trials. But if you commit to his eternal purposes, he will take you beyond what you can imagine, right? That's beyond your deepest desires and fondest dreams. Number four, God allows crises in our lives to draw us closer to him and to demonstrate His power and His love. So we can experience His power and His love. And the last one, since nothing is impossible with God, never stop praying. Don't give up because God never gives up. Amen? Okay. I love you all. Please read ahead next week. Lord willing, we'll open 2 Kings 5. Now that you know, do.